0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerota. Welcome to CNN Tonight. Prosecutors will be poring over videos and interviewing witnesses this weekend, trying to decide whether to charge the 24-year-old former Marine who held Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold on the subway. Tonight, we have the first statement from that 24-year-old. Plus, Donald Trump has until 5 p.m. on Sunday to tell a judge whether he wants to take the stand in the E. Carroll rape and defamation case. But the jury has already heard from him in a newly released video deposition. He claimed Carol was not his type, but then mistook her, mistook her photo for his second wife, Marla Maples.
2: I don't even know who the woman, let's see, I don't know who, it's Marla.
3: you say Marla's in this photo?
2: That's Marla, yeah, that's, that's my wife.
3: Which one, woman are you pointing to? No.
2: Here. Carol. The person you just pointed to was Eugene Carroll.
1: And the great macaroni mystery. Who dumped hundreds of pounds of pasta in the woods in a New Jersey town? We're gonna ask the mayor tonight. Okay, but let's start with what we know about Justin Neely's death on a New York City subway. The 24-year-old man who put him in a chokehold has been identified by his lawyer as Daniel Penny, a college student and former Marine. Jordan Neely's father is demanding answers and an arrest, and protesters want action.
4: Is the killer free? Why 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 is the killer, free? Is the killer free?
1: OK, let's bring in my panel here with me tonight. We have Emmy winner W. Kamal Bell. Criminal defense attorney, Joey Jackson, former Senate candidate, Joe Pinion, and former congressman, Max Rose. Gentlemen, thanks so much for being here with me on a Friday night. Great to have all of you.
4: I like that an Amy qualifies me to be here with all these It
1: people. does. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, okay, so Joey, can you just explain? Let's say that it is as his attorney says. And what he said was, quote, Daniel never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen his untimely death. In that case, do prosecutors charge?
5: Uh, You could still charge, right? So think about the narratives that are going to be here. First of all, when you have an instance like this, you have prosecutors who are going to examine a few things. Number one, was there immediate fear of death or serious physical injury to anyone who was in that subway car? Now, you have a right to exercise self-defense, not only on yourself, but for a third party. Number two, after you get through immediate threat of harm or fear or death, the issue is, was there any reasonability to his actions, right? Meaning when he put in the chokehold, did you need to do it? Was that reason? Number three, was that force proportionate or disproportionate to what if any threat was being posed at the time? And then you could get into all the questions of, well, did he know? Did he foresee? You have to foresee, right? The law says. Now, just to make this point very clear, when you charge someone, it doesn't have to be murder intent. It could be various, right, sort of- Manslaughter? Manslaughter? Yes. So it looks like this. You can be careless in your activities. You could be reckless in your activities. There are certain grades that you do that. So that's what prosecutors will look at. Now, obviously, his defense is going to make all those arguments and say, listen, people were in reasonable fear out of maybe death or serious physical injury. His actions were reasonable under the circumstances. It wasn't only he was speaking. He was maybe engaging in furtive gestures towards someone. So there's going to be these narratives. At the end of the day, I think what happens, you convene a grand jury. You give all the information to the grand jury you get all the witnesses and statements and everything else a grand jury consisting of 23 people makes a determination as to whether not there's proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt but whether there's reasonable cause to believe a simple majority of the 23 if there's reasonable cause to believe a crime has occurred you bring it before a jury you get indicted and a trial jury will make an assessment yeah. as to guilt or innocence
1: Well, how do you see this case?
4: I mean, you know, this is why it's great to have an MMA fan on the panel,
5: (laughs) Uh, because
4: what he's doing, the choke he's applying, and I'm citing other MMA uh, experts, Luke Thomas from Morning Combat, that's a choke that if you're trying to either get someone to submit or get them to pass out, it's less than 15 seconds. By the time you've done it for 15 seconds, they will be well passed out. The fact he held it for 15 minutes is the problem. That's not reasonable at that point. That's not reasonable for that particular activity. And I didn't go to law school. But to me, that looks like somewhere around murder. I don't know what the legal charges are, but it definitely seems like careless at the very least. But certainly he did. After you hold that choke for more than 15 seconds, you're killing someone.
1: Um, Congressman, obviously you uh, served in the Afghan war. You're a vet this um, Daniel Perry was a Marine vet. We understand his attorney that he's just hired, Thomas Kenneth. As you may know, he ran for DA. He mm-hmm. was um, a veteran. Does any of that tell you? I mean, the fact that he's hired this Tom- Thomas Kenneth, does anything tell you about the future of the case? Well,
6: I, I think it's really upsetting that in the coverage of this case thus far, he is always referred to as a veteran, each and every step of the way. And we all know what That inference is. What
1: what is that inference? What does it say to you?
6: they're, They're inferring that he has PTSD. They're, they're inferring that he has some type of trauma. They're inferring that veterans are dangerous. They're inferring that there is some type of instability associated with well,
1: that. Well, hold on a second. Hold on a second, I mean, Congressman. I hear it differently, too, because I've been saying that, and the reason that I've been saying he's a Marine vet is because we didn't know his name. We didn't know much about him. So I was trying to identify him in some way. You well, we some did, identify We could say college
6: student. We could say bystandard. I didn't know he was a college student the, uh, the point statement. that I'm trying to make here is that for particularly post-9-11 veterans, of which I'm proudly one of them, for so long, we have been fighting this notion that somehow we are victims rather than assets, that our, our service meant that we actually gained something, that we could contribute to society rather than being something that someone thanks for their service, and then they walk away, fearing that we might have an outburst at any point that could be either violent or somehow unstable. And, and I just find it deeply disappointing. Look, this is horrific what occurred, and the judicial process will play out. But it, we should not just pass it over that he is constantly referred to as a veteran yeah. and the insinuations associated with
1: I appreciate with that. that perspective. I, really, I truly hadn't thought of that, but that is a helpful perspective in terms of how we're going to describe this going forward. Joe, your thoughts of where we are tonight?
7: Yeah, it's for me, and, and there's obviously, I, I can appreciate Joey kind of walking us through the nuances, but it just feels... So clinical on one side and on the other side, just rage that overcomes what happened here. I think that we have a victim who was failed many, many times by the state and by our system before he ever stepped foot on that subway car. And then you ask yourself about the impulse to act In a world where so many of us have walked down the street, past homeless people, wondering whether that person is just sleeping or dead, and now when you have someone saying, I'm not afraid to go to prison for the rest of my life, is that impulse to act a good thing and then, to your point, juxtaposed with the reality of the length and time for which he had him in that hold, at what point does it become unreasonable? I know I I watched, you know, what happened with Tamir Eliza Rice. It seemed, on its face, unreasonable. We all watch what happened with George Floyd. It seemed unreasonable. In this case, I think we just need more information. But I do think that that notwithstanding, it is reasonable to have a conversation about was the use of force for that particular point in time justified. But I think some of the, the rhetoric that has now uh, yeah. kind of seeped in prevents us from, I think, having a critical conversation about the many, many, many failures in our government, in our systems that led yeah. to this tragedy. I
1: think that's a great point, and we'll know more this weekend when we hear from investigators and prosecutors. But I do want to get to Kamal's documentary. So this is on HBO. It's called 1,000% Me. Let's watch a little clip.
4: When you look in the mirror, what do you see?
8: I like to think that mirrors don't show everything. Like, mirrors show the outside of you, but they, they can't tell, like, the inside of you or how you identify identify just by the look of you.
4: And if I asked you what ingredients make a Miles, what are the ingredients that make you?
8: Um, Ingredients are family, friends, happiness, thoughtfulness, lots of emotion. Black, Asian, and love. And a llama and
1: a corgi. That's it. Can those kids be president?
4: <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I feel like we, the, the age is too high, so let's lower it to like let Let's seven. lower it for them. Whatever I they are, would be good as let's do
1: that. Yeah. So tell us about this.
4: I mean, it's a documentary about mixed-race kids. I have three mixed-race daughters in my house. The first one was my daughter. Don't say anything bad about that kid. Uh, she was
1: fantastic. No, she's
4: beautiful. Yeah. She's great. I do. I'm a good parent. Um, so, <laughs> but it's about mixed-race kids. I think there's a lot of talk about the mixed experience, but I had a lot of talk to mixed-race kids. And so I got my daughter and my two daughters and some of their friends and some other kids to talk about what it's like to be mixed in, 2020, in this 21st century.
1: That's fantastic. So we can watch it when?
4: Streaming now on HBO Max. Can't wait. Yeah.
1: Uh, thank you. Very much. Thank you all for the conversation. All right. Next, what will the jury make of the newly released video of Donald Trump's deposition in the E. Jean Carroll rape and defamation trial? Newly released video shows former President Trump testifying under oath about E. Jean Carroll's claim that he raped her in the mid-90s. The Trump legal team rested its case yesterday without calling any witnesses. CNN's Paula Reed has the story.
9: Well, Allison, the defense has rested in this case, but the judge is giving Trump until the end of the weekend to decide if he wants to testify in person. If he doesn't, though, this newly released video will have been the only time the jury in this case heard directly from the former president.
2: She's accusing me of rape. A woman that I have no idea who she is.
9: Brand new video released showing former President Donald Trump being grilled for nearly an hour in the civil battery and defamation case that writer Egene Carroll brought against him. What you're saying there
3: is, um, Ms. Carroll fabricated um, her claim that you sexually assaulted her, correct? Yes,
2: totally,
9: okay. 100%. Now, the tape coming out in evidence during a weeks-long trial All centered around Carol's allegation that Trump forced himself on her in a New York department store in the 1990s, a claim Trump has denied, both in public and during his deposition under oath in October of last year.
2: She said that I did something to her that never took place. I will tell you, I made that statement and I said, well, it's politically incorrect. She's not my type. And that's 100 percent true. She's not my type.
9: Trump at times getting combative with Carroll's lawyers questioning him.
2: The worst thing you can do, the worst charge, and and you know it's you know it's not true too. You're a political operative also. You're disca- you're a disgrace.
9: At one point, Trump confusing Carol for his ex wife in a nineteen eighties photo with him in it. You saying Marla's in this photo?
2: That's Marla, yeah. That's that's my wife.
9: Which woman one are you pointing to? No.
2: Here. Carol. The person you just pointed to was oh, Carroll.
9: This was the only time the jury in the trial heard from Trump, as there's now no plan for him to testify, and closing arguments are expected early next week. Carroll took the stand early in the trial, telling the jury, "I'm here because Donald Trump raped me, and when I wrote about it, he said it didn't happen. He lied and shattered my reputation, and I'm here to try to get my life back." Trump's lawyer, Joe Takapina, known for his brash and sometimes confrontational style defending clients, pressed Carol on her allegations. Using your own words, the facts you have alleged in this story you have alleged here are odd, Takapino said. Carol responded, certain parts of this story are difficult to conceive of. Yes. Takapina pressed Carol on why she wasn't making a scene during the alleged assault. I'm not a screamer. I was too much in panic to scream. You can't beat up on me for not screaming. Takapina shot back, I'm not beating you up. I'm asking you questions, Miss Carroll. Through tears, Carroll asserted, I'm telling you he raped me, whether I screamed or not. I don't need an excuse for not screaming. And a lawyer on one of Trump's criminal cases tells me he would really prefer if Trump not get on the stand in this case because he's concerned about how Trump could potentially open himself up to further legal jeopardy. The jury is expected to start deliberations after closing arguments early next week.
1: Allison. Paula, thank you very much. Okay, let's bring in CNN legal analysts Jennifer Rogers and Joey Jackson. Do either of you think that Donald Trump shows up to take the stand next week? No way. Not at all. No no chance. (laughs) No. How, give me your assessment of that deposition and what that will mean to a jury.
5: I I don't know that a jury would evaluate that favorably uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, toggling back to why he doesn't come testify. When he comes and testifies, it becomes all about him. And I think also his attorneys don't want to credit the testimony too much, and him showing up may seem to suggest that they're in a bit of trouble, so he doesn't come. In terms of the deposition testimony, I just think uh, you know you can't be obnoxious in a deposition, and when you don't, why? Don't,
1: what happens if you're obnoxious? Well,
5: when it? you don't recognize your own wife, uh, you know that's a problem, or someone who's not your wife, and then you indicate someone's not your type, but yet it was someone you're married to, that's problematic. When you say that the attorney who's asking you questions, and you're not my type either, that becomes also a problem. Problem. And when you explain away and access Hollywood videotape, in which you're saying some pretty inflammatory things, that's problematic as well. Uh, that's what I mean by obnoxiousness. So I just don't know how that lands with a jury. I couldn't imagine that it would land very well.
1: Jennifer, how about that moment where he mistakes E. Carroll for Marla Maples after saying that, that his defense, basically, what he has said repeatedly for why he wouldn't rape her, I guess, is that she's not his type. And then he mistakes her for his ex-wife. So I think that it's safe to assume she might have been
10: his type. Yeah, well, this is problematic on multiple levels, right? Because first of all, rape is not about sexual attraction, right? It's about power and control and domination. So you can't really defend a rape allegation saying, I don't like the way you look, I wouldn't have raped you, right? So point number one. But point number two, yeah, you're not my type, so I wouldn't have raped you, but I can't tell the difference between you and... And my wife, it just, I mean, it obviously puts the lie to that. So on so many levels, problematic and undercuts what he's trying to say. It's his defense. His defense is, I didn't do it. Here's how you know. Well, we don't know for that reason, right? Because it's been undercut by this ridiculousness with the the photo. Um, Okay, let's talk about another
1: legal case that Paula Reid, our great correspondent, is also reporting on. And that is about Hunter Biden and Hunter Biden's um, legal team is apparently going on the offensive. And he has hired Abby Lowell, um, which apparently, according to Paula, there's some consternation in the White House about taking an aggressive tact, which maybe Abby Lowell would do. Um, On MSNBC, President Biden was asked about this tonight.
6: Sir, there is something personal that's affecting you. Your son, while there's no ties to you, could be charged by your Department of Justice. How will that impact
1: your presidency?
2: First of all, my son's done nothing wrong. I trust him. I have faith in him. And it impacts my presidency by making me feel proud of him.
1: Okay, your thoughts?
5: Uh, Look, it's a father defending his son and not only defend in defense of his son, but You know, ultimately, he's trying to say that this is there's nothing to see here. Uh, But on the issue of bringing in Abby Lowell, I mean, this is a person who's the real deal, defended John Edwards successfully. Right. The senator North Carolina who was accused of corruption, Uh, defended Bob Menendez as well, defended Ivanka Trump, Jared Trump. Uh, You know, the bottom line is that Kushner, excuse me, the bottom line is that I just think that going on the offensive sometimes could be effective. Everyone has a different style. No one has a monopoly on wisdom. But I think the fact that he's spinning this in the way, Abby Lowell, on behalf of his client to say that, listen, this is political and I want to go after you, meaning all of his detractors, I think could be very effective.
10: Jen? I think that there are political implications here that really aren't, you know, in my wheelhouse. Legally speaking, ethically speaking, The Biden administration is doing the right thing with this. They've separated themselves away from the criminal investigation. You know, they're they're He's not involved at all in any of that. So so they're doing the right things that they need to do as far as the legal and ethical stuff. Politically, you know, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Um, But he's doing what he needs to do. And as a father, as Joey said, you know, he's defending his son. He's saying, I love him no matter what. And that's the right thing to do in that category, too. Okay, friends, thank
1: you very much for your expertise. Thank you.
10: Okay, we have an update tonight on Richard Glossop. That's the
1: inmate who's been on death row in Oklahoma for so long, he's been given three last meals. Today, as Glossop was meeting with his wife for what they thought would be the final time, he got the news that the Supreme Court has granted him a stay of execution after the state attorney general said he could no longer support Glossop's murder conviction. Glossop told CNN's Bryn Gingras that he will continue the fight.
4: The fight's still not over. Uh, I want to continue to fight. I want to continue to get my message out to people. I want people to continue to stand up. Because until they rule and they get it right, the fight's never done.
1: And Richard Glossop's attorney says they hope that the court will vacate his conviction once and for all. Okay, so what happens if talks to raise the debt ceiling fail and the U.S. defaults on its debt as soon as next month? The ripple effects are potentially catastrophic. For all of us, we'll explain next. The clock is ticking until the U.S. runs out of money. If Congress does not act, the country could default on its debt as soon as June 1st. President Biden spoke about the potential crisis today.
2: We're not a deadbeat nation. We pay our bills. And some of you cover a lot of foreign policy in other countries. You know this isn't becoming an issue in other countries. What's the United States going to do? Are they really fooling around with not paying their debts? The last thing this country needs, after all we've been through, is a manufactured crisis. And that's what this is, a manufactured crisis
1: panel is back and joining us is CNN economics and political commentator Catherine Rampell. Catherine, we've all heard about the dire warnings, if there is some sort of default on the debt, but you spell it out about yes. what exactly it could look like in this Washington Post piece. So I'll just take people through it. These are basically the headlines. Treasuries get downgraded. Interest rates rise. The dollar could lose value. The stock market plummets. That should get people's attention. Uh, companies holding treasuries suffer there's a scramble to close out trades. Infrastructure underpinning the financial system could become overwhelmed. Which one do we need to focus on the most right now?
8: I mean, they're all a little bit scary. The term financial Armageddon was invoked with the last of those steps. The idea that the clearing houses where a lot of these trades take place could go under because you'll have some what's what, uh, People in finance would call a global margin call, like basically all of the collateral underpinning almost every transaction out there uh, gets downgraded. And suddenly uh, brokers and clearinghouses are saying, you got to close out all of your trades. And then the system gets overwhelmed and goes down. So that would be terrifying, Mm -hmm. um, in which case I would suggest everybody invest in bottled water, bullets and beans. and I really hope it doesn't happen.
1: Kamal's <laughs> ready. <I've> got, <laughs> there you got,
8: go. A
4: half a bottle of water. I'm yeah, ready. I,
8: I, you know, I, I really hope it doesn't happen. And a lot depends on what markets actually think is going on. If we default only briefly, but everybody thinks that a deal is imminent, maybe it's not so dire. But we just don't know. We haven't been in this situation before.
1: Congressman, can you explain why Congress plays chicken like this? Why? What's well, the point of this game?
6: When the Democrats were in this situation, they could have played chicken. They often did not. So During really, the Trump presidency. Exactly. So really what we're seeing right now is the original sin of all of this is Kevin McCarthy had to make a deal with 15 potentially more extraordinarily extremist Republicans who were representative of an extraordinarily extremist base. And one of the criteria, one of the pillars of that deal that they made is he has got to engage in this suicidal mission, this politically idiotic (laughs) effort to make the debt ceiling a political issue when during the campaign, 2022 campaign, they never once mentioned this issue. It was cost of living. It was inflation. It was Afghanistan. All politically salient issues They never once mentioned this. So now they're doing this ridiculous action, and they are going to fail. Joe,
1: I see your Cheshire grin. (laughs)
6: It's bad for my blood pressure. I don't know what to tell you. Look, I I,
7: I, I think we have to remember what exactly the debt ceiling is, right? It is money that we have already spent. spent. It is the credit card statement saying, this is what you owe, and here's the date that needs to be paid. So why the game of chicken? I don't I think, respectfully, I think that's a misallocation yeah, of, 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 of how we actually just talk about it. I think that if you look at what's happened right now, Democrats said that Republicans are going to basically dismantle Medicare. That's not what's happening. They said that Republicans are going to basically go and take a you know, shillelagh to Social Security. That's not what's happening. I think if you're looking at what Americans are facing, mm-hmm. record inflation that we know is harming people on Main Street, if you're dealing with economic uncertainty yeah. on Main Street... I don't think it's unreasonable after we printed six trillion dollars to deal with a once in a generational pandemic, after we had a one point seven trillion dollar omnibus spending package to say, hey, the statement is here. Like all families, perhaps we should consider having a conversation about tightening the belt. I don't think that we're going to default. I think if you talk to the 217 Republicans that the president has labeled as extremists uh, for trying to cancel everything from meal on wheels uh, to the Price is Right on Twitter, uh, that yes, uh, those people recognize we can't default on the debt. But at the end of the day, we should be having a conversation about responsible spending. And I don't think that that's extremism. I think it's extreme to say...
8: So I agree with you. We have long-term fiscal problems. And I think I maybe agree with you that they are largely driven by the structure of our our entitlement programs and our demographic trends. I do not agree that there is any universe in which threatening to default on our debt solves any of those problems. If anything, it will make them worse. We saw in 2011 when we came close to defaulting on our debt that raised the borrowing costs for the U.S. government right. by a billion dollars right. that yeah. year alone.
1: Right. Um,
4: and who made us almost default on the debt back then? I can't remember. It was the Republicans. Oh, that's right. That's right. Look, <laughs> hold on,
1: Joe. Let me get him out. And your thoughts as you listen to all of this?
4: I mean, we used to, when I was a kid, we made fun of other countries for doing what we do now. I mean, this is the kind of things that we would have made not paying their debts, not believing in science, not teaching the accurate history. we're doing all that stuff now, and I would just like encourage people to google Venezuela I would say a country that used to be on top of the world and doing every well, and then suddenly started playing games and started restricting things, and suddenly people yeah what are- type of games did they play in Venezuela right like I think again I- I don't think that any
7: Republican is intent on defaulting. I think that if you talk to most people that are in the robust majority in the in the House, they're not planning on defaulting. So
8: I think, I think it's true. McCar- well, I think McCarthy doesn't want to default. I think most of the Republicans don't want to default. I don't know that all of them believe that, or that all of them realize what kind of crisis it would be if,
1: in fact, we did. The reality
7: is we don't need all of them to. We need a majority of members in Congress. Okay, so
1: so go ahead, Max. uh,
6: My friend to the right of me, both literally and figuratively, is missing something absolutely critical here, which is that when these members say We're not going to default. We're not going to default. But then they engage in this incredibly irresponsible action. Let's judge them by what they're doing, not by what they're saying. And this is incredibly dangerous and merely representative of the fact that they're playing base politics. You know it. And guys, I'm sorry that we're
1: out of time. We have so much still coming up because Shonda Rhimes is here. Um, But I'll let you guys take this up in the. Yeah. Yeah. Stick around for this, please. Uh, Up next, I'm going to speak to Shonda Rhimes, the creative powerhouse behind some of the biggest TV and streaming hits of the 2010s and beyond. And ahead of that, the great pasta caper. Someone dumped hundreds of pounds of noodles in one New Jersey town. It's a macaroni mystery. The 2010s in the United States were perhaps the most consequential decade since the 1960s, marked by political and social unrest, the rise in social media, and capped off by the year that changed everything, 2020. Now CNN's acclaimed Decades series is back with the 2010s and a definitive look at that transformative decade. Up first, we examine the rise of peak TV and its impact on pop culture in America. Here's a preview.
7: The 2010s have ushered in a new era called
10: Peak TV.
0: The like button was a mark of genius. Walk on Gangnam Style. It can be frustrating, this business of democracy. Oh!
10: I am
9: running for president. president of the
7: United States. It was a moment that said, we have
5: to tell our stories.
1: Gangnam We drop. I may be the voice of my generation, or at least a voice. Joining us is the creative mastermind of some of the biggest TV and streaming hits of the 2010s and beyond, including Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton and the upcoming Queen Charlotte. It is Shonda Rhimes. Shonda, so great to see you. Hello. I'm glad to be here. So, Shonda, your body of work is obviously so successful. Can you just take us back to the beginning as you were starting to conceive of these various shows? And what was your
3: inspiration? What was your mission at the time? You know, at the time, I really was wanting to make shows that I wanted to watch. You know, I felt like I wanted to see shows that represented me, that represented the women I knew, that showed women in various stages of being competitive or angry or dark or joyful. You wanted to see everything.
1: And so if we look at three of your biggest hits of the 2010s, Grey's Anatomy, which, of course, is still running now in its 19th season. I mean, incredible. And then, of course, Scandal which introduced viewers to the first black leading lady in a drama in decades. And then How to Get Away with Murder, which EGOT winner uh, Viola Davis says put her on the map. So each of these shows, of course, was groundbreaking in its own way. Is there a through line that you would say contributed to their success?
3: I think that part of the through line really was portraying these women as they actually are, portraying women as they actually are, not idealized. I was telling somebody that before Grace came out, I didn't really see women who were competitive in their jobs and necessarily didn't like each other or fought for things that they cared about on television. They were always somebody's lovely wife or mother or a perfect representation of a woman versus being a real woman.
1: And how big would you say a role does sex appeal Play Is that actually one of your sort of secret
3: sauces? You know, I never thought of it as, you know, like I can pick up a, a, somebody with sex appeal, but it seems to be a strange gift I have in casting to sort of find the guy that people want to watch. It also helps that these guys are amazing actors. For sure, and I mean, your women have a lot of sex appeal as well.
1: I think, I guess they do, yeah, that's true. But that's not it. I've been enjoying it so far. Yeah, uh, us too. So the 2010s saw the advent, of course, of streaming entertainment. And you embraced streaming with the Netflix hits Bridgerton and Inventing Anna. And so did this new platform change the way that you approached storytelling? And in general, how do you think it's changed the kind of stories or the kinds
3: of characters that we see? I don't think that it's changed the way I approach storytelling. There is some... um, difference in how things are produced. You know, you're making many less episodes than you were on network television. But I also think that it hasn't changed necessarily the stories I'm telling. Perhaps the way I'm telling stories can be more adventurous. And the depth we're going into with the characters can be a little bit more adventurous. There's a certain kind of show I was making for ABC, you know, a Shondaland show. Now it's a very different kind of Shondaland show because we have no boundaries. That's
1: great. I mean, no boundaries sounds very delicious. So um, there's of course lots of buzz about the premiere of Queen Charlotte on Netflix this week. This is a prequel, we should say, to Bridgerton, and it's loosely based on an actual historical figure,
3: Queen Charlotte. So what made you want to tell her story? You know, you watch Golda, who stars as Queen Charlotte, in Bridgerton, and she's fascinating, the levels that she's given that character, the, the amount of depth. And I became really interested in How did this woman get this way? How did she become this person? You know, there is a real historical figure, but there's also her as Golda made her. So I wanted to see how that would play out.
1: And I read that it's your most
3: personal project. How so? I think one of the things I said was, if I retired tomorrow, I would be content because I really loved making this project. The actors, India and Corey, working with everybody, they were such, fantastic people. And the story we got to tell, which went from the, goes from the past to the present and back again, is it was really a challenge for me to tell and to figure out how to tell it correctly. Have you followed the drama of the real royal family? You know what? I try not to because I always think these are actual people and we've turned them into sort of commodities to watch. And I sort of stay out of that part.
1: So as you know, the country's in the midst of some heated culture wars. Do you think that the entertainment industry has a role to play one way or another in those?
3: I mean, I think definitely the entertainment industry shifts culture all the time. People are definitely affected by what they watch. I think that's a good thing, and I think it's necessary.
1: Um, on my program uh, here on CNN, um, on Primetime, we do a lot of stories lately about artificial intelligence. Do you have anxiety about how AI will change your business?
3: I find it very creepy. I mean, I do, I look at that and I think this technology is, I don't necessarily think it's gonna damage my career, but the idea that you could make actors say things that they wouldn't normally say or make a film without actual humans is very disturbing to me. Yeah.
1: You're not and I don't think
3: it's necessarily fair to all that talent, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, okay, so give us a preview of what we can expect to see out of Shondaland
3: next. Oh, wow. Well, first we have Queen Charlotte coming up. So you, hopefully you're watching that and enjoying it. Um, but after that, you know, we we're making a wonderful project called The Residence, which is set in the White House. Um, it's sort of a mystery in the White House. And I'm excited about that. That's been really fun to work on. That's very cool. And what do we need to know about Queen Charlotte? Queen Charlotte is... Fun and sexy, but it's really just the examination of a complicated love story. It's not a fairy tale ending, but it is something that starts as a fairy tale and then grows into something more specific. And it's the story of women and their friendships. I mean, we're watching a young woman come into her power. That's awesome, Shonda.
1: We can't wait to see it. It sounds fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. It's really great to talk to you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Be sure to tune in. The all new CNN original series, The 2010s. Premier Sunday with a special two-hour episode at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific only on CNN. And we'll be right back.
4: Come over here, get you something. You never know
7: you might have to cook for twenty guys someday. You see, you start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste. You fry it to make sure it doesn't stick. Mm-hmm. You got it to a boil, you're shoving all your sausage and your meatballs? Huh? A little bit of wine.
1: Cooking for 20 guys, Clemenza? That's nothing. How about enough pasta for 300? Take a look. Somebody dumped several hundred pounds of pasta. Oodles of uncooked noodles along the side of a creek in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Roughly 15 wheelbarrows of spaghetti, ziti, and elbow macaroni. For more on this macaroni mystery, let's bring in Owen Henry, the mayor of Old Bridge. Mayor, this is mayor? a crazy story. Um, what did you think when 300 pounds of pasta showed up in your town?
11: Well, I wasn't surprised. As a mayor, you have to be ready for everything. So it, wasn't, it didn't come as a shock. It came as a little bit of a okay. Let's take care of it. As 300
1: pounds of pasta did not along a river, a, a creek bed, did not shock you.
11: <laughs> it didn't fall out of the sky. No, we hope not. We're not going to call the X-Files. But, uh, you know, we, we, within hours it was cleaned up. I can't believe it has taken on a life of its own like this. And I guess I'm the luckiest mayor in the world here that I'm on CNN and not talking about a tragedy. We're talking about something that's pretty humorous, I think. And a lot of people have have made jokes about it. I, I can go on and on and on about the suspects
1: and, uh, let's talk about that. I want to talk about the pasta puns because when these pictures were posted on social media, people cooked up a ton of puns. And so I'll read some to you. Uh, here's one from Dennis Hogan who writes, some people will commit illegal dumping for silly reasons. That's a good one. (laughs) Obviously it's a mystery, but we can only know so much about what happened. These are awesome Italian puns. Um, here's one. The police won't stop until the perpetrator is identified. And then here's one. Yep. We should send the perpetrators to the state penitentiary. Yep. So um, what was your favorite joke about police all police this? On
11: and on and on. And Lynn linguini is the culprit. We have so many of them just going on and on.
1: That's fantastic. But Mayor, it's like it's, it's, how did you get rid of all of this?
11: Well, our Department of Public Works uh, scooped it up with a machine and put it in a dump truck and disposed of it properly. It was no big deal. No big deal. Um, Mayor- I just wanted to get it away from that waterway because the forecast. This was a week ago, last Friday, and the forecast was for very heavy rains Saturday and Sunday. So I thought, in the best interest of everyone that this pasta didn't get, you know, washed into the waterway and potentially clog up one of the basins or a pipe, was to get it out of there. And we did. We took it out of there. Somebody made a mistake, obviously. Obviously, dumped this. This could have went out in the trash. It's food. I'm hoping, you know, that it was expired and not good pasta. That could have been, uh, you know, accepted in one of our food banks or one of our local pantries. You know, nobody likes to see food wasted like this. Um, But this was just not disposed of in the right way. This is something that you put out in your trash. And we're under the impression that it posed no environmental issues. Mm -hmm. You know, it's made of uh, flour, water, and eggs. Mm-hmm. So there's no toxic materials that are going to come out of the pasta. So yeah. I just, I can't believe it. it's taken on a life of its own.
1: Yeah. But, but Mayor, um, who did this? I mean, resolve the mystery for us, the the great macaroni mystery. Who did this? What? Why did they do this?
11: We're, we're looking into it and I'm pretty confident we're going to find out who did it and why they did it and make sure they don't do it again. Um, <laughs> So I'm confident we'll find out who it is.
1: Okay, because there are reports, there are media reports that it was somebody whose um, maybe elderly mom had passed away and she had perhaps stockpiled a lot of dry pasta (laughs) and that he or she just wanted to quickly get rid of it. Is there truth to that?
11: Um, We're looking into it. I mean, obviously, I can't get into details that I don't know. I mean, a lot of this stuff on social media. I know you can't believe all of everything, what you hear and half of what you see, but uh, we're looking into it. I'm confident we'll find out.
1: Well, like you, I think that the biggest tragedy here is wasted pasta. So I hope that you get <laughs> to the bottom of it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on tonight. We get to the bottom of the pasta. Yeah. Part, yeah. I hope you get to the bottom of the pasta bowl. Um, Mayor Owen Hen- Henry, thanks so much. We'll talk again, Thank I hope, so when you crack this mystery.
11: The Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
7: Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN Flash Talk about the album that has Nashville talking: "Call Me Country." Beyoncé and Nashville's Renaissance.
10: Watch it at Max.com/CallMeCountry.